We're looking at servants and masters. This morning we laid the groundwork for Paul's thoughts inspired by God of his view of slavery. And then we looked at, started looking at four phrases, the first one being, servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Secondly, obedience is to be not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart. And now number three, Paul uses a participle which captures obedience as well and sort of covers all of verse 22, fearing God, fearing God. So the obedience of a servant is to be the kind that is according to Christ, the Lord over all, with a singleness and integrity of heart owing to fearing God, fearing God. What I want to attach to that is the next participle in verse 24, which should be taken with verse, verse 22 and 23, where Paul says, knowing. So fearing God, heartily knowing that out of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons." God is not a respecter of persons. Now, a slave would have never experienced partiality. They would have always been discriminated against. But now Paul is speaking not to the masters. You would think he would use that verse alone for the masters. He, he does that in Ephesians, but here, speaking to the slave as motivation, you know that of the Lord you receive the reward because you serve the Lord Christ, then in third person, but he, still speaking to the Christian slave, but he that doeth wrong shall receive wrong of the same Lord. Why? Because he is not impartial in his judgment. And that's universal, isn't it? How is that helpful for their obedience in ours, and how does that connect to the fear of God? So that's what we want to talk about first this afternoon. Obedience Fearing God. The first thing we should consider is that fearing God in the Bible is a good thing, right? If you just consider some of the passages in the Old Testament about fearing God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. So the fear of the Lord is the catalyst to help us depart from evil. That's a good thing, right? The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and they that have it abide satisfied. Proverbs 19.23 In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and His children have a place of refuge. So in the fear of the Lord, we can abide satisfied. In the fear of the Lord, we have confidence and a place of protection, a refuge, a covert, a sanctuary to hide in. O oh, fear the Lord, ye His saints, for there is no want. You lack nothing when you fear the Lord. O oh, great, how great is thy goodness laid up for them that fear thee. So if you fear God, there's a great goodness laid up for you, the psalmist says. And David says, Come, ye children, and hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And he teaches it first with a question. Who is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? You want to live the good life? Then fear the Lord, and you'll live the good life. So whatever the fear of the Lord is here... It's something good, it's something healthy, it's something helpful. But what is it exactly? Well, you heard read this morning in Psalm 33, 8, 
Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of God. So the fear of the Lord is to be awestruck with God. Now, the word for awe, just in the English language, which expresses also what it means in the Greek, is to have a feeling of fear, just fear like you would experience, coupled and mixed with a feeling of admiration and wonder. That's not just one, it's not just the other. If it's one, then we're just in terror of the Lord. If it's the other, then we treat Him in a way that is not honoring, chipper, flippant. When it's both, it brings a stability. It brings a weightiness about God that's both trembling and at the same time full of admiration. So recently I was watching a news clip of a group of people in Africa on a safari and they were in one of those safari kind of jeeps, uh, gray camouflage type, and they had seen a rhinoceros and decided they were going to get a little closer. Well, as you can imagine, they got a little too close. And the rhino simply just dipped his head with his horn and flipped the jeep multiple times in the air as if a man were kicking a tin can. It was just that effortless. And he did it again. He did it five or six times. Didn't break a sweat. Didn't look like it was hard. It just a little nudge of his head and the jeep just went flying. Okay. At that moment, the only emotion I felt was sheer admiration. I was just like, whoa, wow. I might even said, dude, I mean, that is amazing. No fear whatsoever. Now, I don't know how your brain thinks, but this is how mine thinks. All the time when I see something like that. Immediately, I transposed myself into the Jeep. And I thought, well, no, let's not get in the Jeep. Let's get out of the Jeep. And I'm standing face to face with the rhino. I mean, just inches apart. There's no tree I can hide in or climb up on the Serengeti as if I could climb a tree anymore. There's nowhere to run as if I could outrun a rhino. I'm face to face with a rhino. Wonder, dudeness, and wildness is gone. I am simply struck with terror. No other emotion. Nothing. A sense of awe is when what happened when I watched the screen, wonder and amazement, comes together with what I experienced in the face of the rhino. Sheer fear. How can those two emotions come together? And this is how. If the rhino were able to speak and say, Hey, Mike, I'm not going to hurt you. Come here. Feel my horn. Wrestle me. Jump on my back. The fear would not leave me. When I felt of his, whatever skin that is, not leather, almost said leather, felt the massiveness of the neck which is more impressive than any military piece of machinery or jeep I've ever seen. Massive. And was able to, to, to hug and grab the rhino. Trembling, now filled with wonder and awe in the same experience. 
That's the fear of the Lord in Scripture. It's when we approach God and understand that God says, you're safe in my Son. And then we can look at God with with all the, the panoramic wonder of the Bible and see those things that make us tremble and wonder and be filled with trembling and know I'm safe in the arms of Jesus. I'm safe in His gentle breast. That's the only way those two experiences come together. Now, how does that help the slave or help us in obedience when then Paul says, knowing that when we are fearing God as we should, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, or he that doeth wrong shall receive the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Now, let's consider those two verses in light of fearing the Lord or the experience of of standing in awe of God, which is what Psalm 33.8 tells us. All right? Paul is speaking to the Christian slave in order to encourage them to fear God in a way that these two verses together is going to help. Now, if you stand on one side of the verse, or verse 24, it's wonder, admiration at the, at the inheritance of God. And if you just stand on verse 25, terror. Because who here hasn't done any wrong? We've all done wrong. What is it about these verses that takes away the fear of the wrong I've done? It's when we understand that in Christ, all of our wrong has been placed on Him as if He were the wrongdoer. And God's wrath, the wrath of the rhino, and His massive horn has been satisfied on my behalf on your behalf. But how and on what, what way do I get into that? It's only by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone. There's no other way. It's not what you do. It's not what you work out. It's not your prayer life. It's not your Bible reading. It's not anything you think or do. It is only by resting in the blood of Christ. In fact, Psalm 147, the Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear Him and those that hope in His mercy. And how do you hope in that mercy? Through Christ alone. How is this going to help the slave keep fearing God so he doesn't put himself in a position to fear the wrong that he has done? And he can have the deep assurance of knowing that in the fear of the Lord there's confidence. In the fear of the Lord there's the good life. In the fear of the Lord there's a place of protection and a place of sanctuary. Only when by faith the slave stays in the sanctuary. If he leaves the sanctuary and turns his back on the rhino, and runs away in apostasy? God's not a respecter of persons. Now what's Paul doing here? He's encouraging the perseverance of the saints. Because only those who have faith and keep trusting Jesus are the ones who will enjoy the inheritance. So oddly enough, the way you fear the rhino is you just keep hanging on to him. And you stay with him. And you don't leave him no matter what. No matter what you see happening in the world that may look better than the rhino. It's not. No matter what the fears are. No matter what you're confronted with. No matter what difficulties you run into. You hang on to the rhino and you keep kissing him on the cheek. Now listen to Peter when he speaks about this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. All right, what did Paul say? Knowing. Fearing God, knowing you have an inheritance from Christ. Who has that inheritance? Hoping in Him. Hoping. To an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. For whom? Well, the elect of God, right? That's how Peter starts his epistle. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience. That's your obedience, based on the prepositions. Elect according, sanctification through, unto obedience. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been begotten. You have hope in Christ. The inheritance is yours. How do I know? You are kept by the power of the rhino. Now children, you understand that I'm illustrating that to mean God. He's not a rhino. We get that, right? But he represents the rhino in the illustration. All right? You're being kept by the power of God, not through your works, through faith, for how long? Unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See? The inheritance is for all those that have been begotten again to a lively hope and that remain in faith in Christ because God is keeping them by faith. So the deep assurance we have that we're not going to receive the wrong that we have done and Jesus received it for us is we keep trusting in the inheritance, we're trusting in Jesus and we're drawing close to the rhino in the illustration. Because what does God say? Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. So the fear of God is not a terror of the Lord. That would exclude love. It's not just admiration as if God doesn't have any wrath. It's the fear of the Lord knowing His wrath has been satisfied in Christ, and it's admiration for Jesus because He's loved us and given Himself for us and we are delighted to be able to know the powerful, majestic, glorious God and be safe in the sanctuary of His fear. Safe in the arms of Jesus. And so Paul is encouraging those slaves who may be in a bad situation, who may have a difficult time, not to take life in their own hands and depart from the rhino. And live life on their own terms. Why? Because at the end of life, God will not respect or show partiality. For all those in faith in Christ, the inheritance. All those who are out of faith, never had faith, do not have faith, they will receive the wrong for which they do. And Paul expects us to apply it to ourselves in fearing God that will have us, help us have a deep assurance of belonging to Christ and the inheritance being ours and keep us from checking out and going back to the wrong that God has rescued us from. And so the fear of the Lord is a healthy view of God that's going to make us stable. It's going to give us the good life. It's going to give us confidence. It's going to be a sanctuary, a refuge. It's going to help us depart from evil. When Paul is going to summarize in Romans 3 what it means to be under sin, the very summary of that is what? Verse 18 of chapter 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They look at the rhino and it's no big deal. They don't fear Him. They don't know Him. They don't treasure Him. That's all of us. Now what's the first thing that happens when you're no longer under sin 
and you've been awakened to the fear of God, guilt. Romans 3.19, the very next verse. We know whatever the law says, it says to them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty. Now guilt produces fear until you get to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. I've done wrong and I'm guilty. The rhino is going to destroy me. No, he destroyed the son on my behalf. And now we're awakened to the fear of God. We move into God with great hope. And we see His wrath in the Bible. We say, thank God. You want to be thankful for something in this Thanksgiving season? Thank God that He spared you from His wrath forever out of the sheer will of His own mercy. And then draw close to God. That's your deep assurance. Move in toward God. He wants you to. He says, don't be afraid, my son. Come in and feel my massive arms. Look at my power and my weight and know that you've been spared from it. And then look at my son and see all of that being consumed in Christ on the cross. And out of that, his righteousness flowing freely to those who trust him. And what's the upshot of trust that Paul is after? And obey Him, right? How do I know I really trust God? How do I know I really love God? Well, the Bible over over again says when, when something's happening horizontal in your relationships, when love is going out, right? That love that flows from one to another is not the prerequisite for salvation. It's not what has to be done for you to be saved. It's just indicative. It's an indicative. The, 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 the rhinoceros of God's love is so overwhelmingly glorious and gives you such thanksgiving that it, it, it works itself out in just acts of love. Even the little stuff of life. Just a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, I'll never forget that. See, we always think in terms of big, massive, just go give a cup of cold water. Right? For, for the name of Christ. And you're acting out of faith for the glory of God. So Paul brings in the fear of God not to make them scared, but to draw them close to God and understand the inheritance is theirs. And I love the way that Paul says, you shall receive the reward, but then he goes third person, he. He's not claiming these people don't have faith. He's just saying, for them, for those that say they're Christian and they're not, well, God's not going to be partial. It's, it's all those in Christ. And so you are going to receive the reward, so don't be like those who leave and turn from God. Draw in close. Don't run from God. He loves you. He gave Himself for you. Draw in close. Moving close to God through the Word and experience the deep assurance of knowing that Jesus is yours and you are His. And out of that will come what? The obedience of a slave the obedience of a husband and wife, the obedience of, to the government, the obedience in all the ways we've looked at that God calls on us to obey. Not perfectly, because we're not perfect. But redemptively, we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And the impact of that is love. Love. Number four and lastly. And whatsoever you do, verse 23, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Heartily is... 
is the word ek, which means out of, like we get the word exit or exit sign. And then heartily is suke or soul. It can be translated heart or soul. So when you obey, let your obedience be out of the soul. That's what Paul is saying, out of the heart. So, so from the inside to the outside. Now, when we think about the English word heartily, which can express that the English is not the same as the Greek. Heart here is just the seat of emotions, of feelings, affections, desires, etc. But when we do something heartily, we mean fully, completely, energetically, fully on board. When you eat heartily, you enjoy it, you do it with gusto. I mean, you know, you probably don't even look up very much. Hey, we communicate here? <laughs> heartily I'm eating. When you say something Heartily or laugh heartily, you don't hold back. You just laugh as hard as you can. When you agree heartily, that you, there's no hesitation. I'm, I'm on board. I agree. And when you obey heartily, what does that mean? If it's out of the soul, what is in the soul that produces a heartily obedience? If it's out of the heart then it's coming out of a heart for which something is in the heart that's producing an energy, an energetic, a, a willingness to obey Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master in a way that brings you heartily under people that may not be the kind of people you would rather work under. They may not be the kind of people that are very kind or the kind of bosses, the kind of people we work for that recognize your hard work. So if your work is dependent on the fleshly masters, you are not heartily. It's not coming out of the soul. What's coming out of the soul is bitterness and anguish and why do I have to work here? And of course you can work somewhere else, right? But as long as you're there, as long as you're under that authority and there's no lawful way to leave that authority for the glory of God... God expects you to submit heartily. Now let's think about Paul for a minute here. Look at chapter 4. And interestingly, Paul is speaking from someone on the inside, right? They might say, Paul, what do you know about being a slave? Well, a lot, actually. Verse 2, continue in prayer, chapter 4, watching the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I also am in prison. Bonds. He's a slave of Rome. He's not a free man. He's owned by Rome. He can't go where he wants. can't do what he wants. He's chained to a Roman soldier. So Paul is writing this epistle, the epistle to the Ephesians and the epistle to the Philippians, and he's in prison. And what do we think of Paul's obedience to God? It is heartily. He's not complaining. There's no word of complaint in verse 3. He said, why have you people sprung me out? Somebody get a bail bondsman. Pay the fee. He doesn't even talk about himself. He talks about the advancement of the gospel. Paul is heartily all in in obedience because he's all in for the glory of Christ. All that he can think about in his slavery is advancing, advancing the gospel. In fact, in Philippians 1.12, what does he say? But I would that you should understand, beloved or brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out. They've, 
They've come about to the furtherance of the gospel. The word furtherance is advancement. Now, as we've done before, if you were to track in Acts chapter 21 all the things that happened to Paul until the time he is in Rome, he is beaten almost to death. He is charged falsely. He goes to court in which he's charged falsely. They conspire to take his life. Men have, 40 men conspire together not to eat to the Apostle Paul is a dead man. In God's providence, through Paul's sister's son, he gets delivered. They move him on to the next location, appears before Felix, Augustus, and finally he's on his way to Rome. He's in Eurachlodon, a terrible storm. Finally he's shipwrecked. And then he finally makes his way to Rome and says, everything that happened to me, and I didn't tell the half of it, has happened to the advancement of the gospel. Now, how can that happen for Paul? What would you have done in all that? Well, that's an easy one for me. I I would have been (laughs) upset. See? But because Paul's mindset is so oriented on the gospel of grace, he's so consumed with what God has done in his life that he doesn't deserve, that out out of Paul's heart, out of his soul... Exuke, out of, his, out of his heart comes an energy and enthusiasm that even prison and slavery cannot quench. Because it's all about the lordship and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does he say in the epistle to the Philippians? He would use that same word, furtherance. He would say, I know I shall abide and continue with you all for your progress and furtherance of joy of the faith. And that's a paraphrase. So Paul's concerned in prison about the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of the people's joy that comes from faith. So Paul's own faith, which flows out of his heart, is a faith that is producing joy, even when he's in prison. Now you can see that that's necessary, talking to slaves. They might say, I can have no joy, I'm not free, I'm owned by another person, or I'm in a dead-end job, I'm going nowhere, every time I try to get a promotion, it doesn't happen. See, if your joy is dependent on earthly things, you're riding a roller coaster. You're up one day, down the next, you're moody, because if it's dependent on the way men treat you, then joy is a fleeting thing, isn't it? But if it's dependent on the Lord, And it is, then the joy of the Lord is your strength. In fact, remember the prayer we learned in Colossians 1.11. Paul would say, or Colossians 1.9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will, and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What would that look like if that happened, if that prayer is answered? Verse 10, That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what it would look like. Now what's it going to take to keep this going throughout life? Because Paul's always concerned about fruit bearing all of life. Well, it would take verse 11. Strengthened, being strengthened. So that verse 11 just wraps around verse 9 and 10. Being strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and long suffering. That's perseverance. That's continuing under difficulty, circumstances, and difficult people like a slave would have to do. Very difficult circumstances. With what? With joyfulness. Now the joyfulness wraps around the whole prayer, right? How are you going to keep going in difficult circumstances? 
with a kind of strength that comes from the Spirit that keeps you patient, which means endurance, and keeps you long-suffering, not only with circumstances, but difficult people. Paul had a lot of difficult people to deal with. But out of his heart was a heartily obedience to God, not perfectly, because Paul's life was punctuated with thanksgiving and with joyfulness. And it permeates his epistles in conditions and circumstances that you would not be joyful. That you would expect him to be a complainer, to be bitter, and to be resentful because what happened to him was not owing to something he did wrong. In fact, when he's beaten and put in prison at Philippi, the very epistle of joy, he sings at midnight. Now, I don't know about you, but even if you're weeping, if you're singing, there's some joy there, right? Even if the, the, the reason you're singing is a difficult thing, if you're singing, you're able to sing, there's some joy in those tears. So Paul is living a life by example, living a life of obedience heartily because Paul is joyful in the Lord. Now let's look at one passage here that relates to this. Uh, it's another passage Paul will speak about towards uh, slaves or servants in 1 Corinthians 7. And I want us to think about it in terms of being in any situation where the circumstances you're in are not your doing. In other words, you're, uh, it's not the bed you made so you have to lie in it kind of thing. It's something that came into your life and you're there. And it's not pleasant. And you don't want to be there, but you can't get out at the moment. So that really speaks to the Christian slave because Paul would say it's better to be free in this text. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse... 20. Let's start in verse 18. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Say, well, I'm, I'm a Jew, but now I understand the Gentiles are included. Maybe I shouldn't be a Jew. No. Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? I'm a Gentile, maybe I need to be a Jew. No, let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he is or was called. Art thou called being a servant? Verse 21, care not for it. Don't be troubled about it. But if thou mayest be free, use it rather. All right, now, Paul is talking about two kinds of calling in verse 20. Let every man remain in the same calling wherewith he was called. What's the difference? Well, when you're called, you're called effectually by God. The Spirit of God opens your eyes to the gospel and you believe the gospel and trust in Jesus. That's the effectual call because he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the effectual call is when God called this person. Now, what's the calling in the calling? So when Paul says, stay in the calling wherewith you were called of God, he means stay in the place you were planted when God called you. And the context is, 
you're a slave. You're a servant. So Paul says to serve Christ, it's not necessary for you to get out of that condition, although that's best. And we already talked about that this morning. And if you can do that, then do it. But otherwise, you are missing no Christian privilege in the condition you are. And that, that is true of us today, isn't it? No matter what our circumstances, how difficult they may be. See, when we are not obeying the Lord heartily, it means we're not recognizing the sovereign rule of God over our lives, are we? See, did God say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize you were going to be a slave when I called you. Here, let me take that back and I'll wait till you get out. No. Everything in that servant's life to that point was part of the foreordination of God. In a way, God is righteous and God is not a sinner, but in a way that the plan of God, the counsel of God is concerning all events, all people, all circumstances, all specifics from day one to the end. Amen. So in this condition that I'm in right now, I have to ask myself, why am I here? No. Does that cancel out the secondary causes? No, they're all true, but the ultimate, decisive, ultimate reason is God's providence. Right. And if there's a reason I'm there because of my sin, I need to repent of that. But God... Let that be. And so, God is ultimately ruling over it. So, let every man stay in the same calling where he was called. Remain where you are, unless it's unlawful to remain there, unless you can lawfully, to the glory of God, get out of it. Otherwise, stay in the place you are where God has planted you and flourish there because that's where you are, were when He effectually called you. So now he says, are you called being a servant? Because the answer was, for some of them, yes, that applies to me. Care not for it, don't be troubled, but if you may be made free, use it rather. Now, now let me talk to single people just for a moment. See, you may be thinking, well, my plight, my circumstances, I didn't want to be in this situation, I didn't want to be unmarried, I wanted to be married by now, I'm not married, and you get into a woe is me kind of way of thinking, right? And, and that can apply to, to married people in different ways and different things and being in a certain kind of job in a certain place in your life. So I didn't think I was going to be here at this time of my life. I thought I'd be further than this. And here I am where I don't want to be. So, if you can be married, good. But if you're not, abide in the calling wherewith God has called you and be satisfied with God. And serve God. So when Paul says use it rather, if you can have the opportunity to be free, then, then be free. So I'm going to say to the single people, use your singleness rather. Use it for the glory of God. I'm not picking on you. I am just seem to fit here, so we'll talk about it, right? A lot of single people here. A lot of people here not even thinking about marriage. So if you get there, and when are you ever going to be married? Don't let that rob you of the time of your life when you have energy and enthusiasm which you can obey the Lord more heartily than the people my age, at least physically, right? You can have an energy and a zeal for the Lord that physically our time has passed. Now, we can still have zeal, but the body won't move as well as yours will, right? So, love God with all your heart, soul, and might. 
And you have a lot of might right now. So use it. Use your resources. Use all that you are for the glory of God in what you're doing, in the context of where you are, because God has planted you there. You're not there just because of all your good decisions or just happen to fall out according to luck. No, you're there providentially to serve God and to honor Him in the context. Whether your situation is very difficult right now or whether your situation is not so difficult. Things are kind of going like you'd like it. I'll just give it some time and things will not go as you planned it very long, will it? But it will always go as God planned it. Everything, universally, will always go as God planned it. Because He's the ruler over everything. And He's your master. He's your Lord. He's the one that gave Himself for you at a great cost. At the cost of His life. At the cost of becoming a creature. Forever. He's a creature. Forever. How amazing is that? No wonder Wesley wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Amazing. All right, what does he say next? Verse 22, Because he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, being a slave, is the Lord's freeman. Now he's going he's to bring the master, uh, the, the, the slave and the freeman together on the same pew. Watch. If you're called in the Lord being a servant, if God effectually called you while you're in this condition, you're free in the Lord. You're free to serve Him. There's nothing holding you back. Paul continued to serve uh, the Lord on a Roman chain. And in prison, he wrote the epistles. That's heartily. Now, if he's consumed with himself and all the circumstances, we don't get part of the New Testament, right? All right, here's the other side of it. Also, he that is called being free, you're Christ's slave. Right? You're bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Don't let men dominate your thinking Dominate who you are, whether you're in slavery or out, Paul would say. Don't be consumed with that. Serve the Lord now where you are. Why? You've been bought with a price for that reason. So glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's, whether you're single or married or whatever your condition, now is the time to serve God. Now here's the key, verse 24. Brothers, let every man wherein he is called, right, effectually called into the circumstances that you're in when you were called, or now after you've been called, you're in a set of circumstances still. Those circumstances ebb and flow, but, but you're in something right now. Whatever those circumstances, here's how you do it. Therein, Abide with God. Live with God. Single people, are you abiding with God? See? That's going to transform your experience of singleness. See? You've been bought with a price. No matter how conditions get, no matter how bad it may be, you're never alone. No matter how lonely you may think you are, you're never alone because Jesus, the great rhino kids, right? You know, that's the illustration. He's with you. Draw near to Him. Live with Him. Abide in Him. What's the upshot of abiding in John 15? If you abide in Me, My words abide in you. You shall ask what you will, and it shall be given you. Here it is My Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be My disciples. 
As I continue in my Father's love, continue in my love. Same word, abide. Right? If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. What is Jesus saying? See, living in the love of God produces fruit bearing. It's not the other way around. If you go bear fruit, you'll be living in my love. No. If you abide in God, if you abide in Christ, if you live in His love, the upshot will be you'll bear fruit. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. Full. And when you put those two together, to abide with God in 1 Corinthians 7.24 and to abide in His love, to abide in Christ in John 15 is to abide in the joy of the love of Christ for you and to you. So your joy is not dependent on getting married. I know that's what everybody thinks. Not this kind of joy. You can be just as joyful in your singleness than anybody on the planet that's married, no matter how good their marriage is. And as married people, you can be very joyful in your marriage if you're abiding in Christ because His love is the all-satisfying presence of the Savior that delights the soul, that produces fruit, and that brings about a joy and delight no matter what your circumstances so, when we don't recognize the providence of God in our lives, whether we're in a job we'd rather not be in and we've got no way out at the present, or in other circumstances of trial and difficulty that are very challenging, we can still, as Paul is encouraging people that are in circumstances that obviously they'd rather not be in, because he says, if you can get out of it, get out of it. And that just implies that that's the best thing and it is. And so what does Paul say? He says, whatever you do, so that just covers all of us, doesn't it? Whatever you do, where you are, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and Your love for us. Help us to abide in Your love. Help us, Lord, to fear You. And I ask You to increase our fear. Increase our fear of you, Lord, in a, in a way that is biblical and scripture, scriptural that we may hope in you, that we may find a strong place of sanctuary and refuge, place of confidence, that we may truly live the good life and see many days and desire life and to see good, that we may be able to depart from evil because it is the power to turn from sin that it, we may abide satisfied by the fear of the Lord, and that, Lord, we would have the fear of God before our eyes. And in so seeing and knowing, Jeremiah clearly connects the fear of the Lord with the fountain of living water. And so may you be like a fountain to us, that we treasure and move into to drink and to enjoy and to rest in and to see and to know all that you are in Scripture as you open our eyes again and again to see the glories of our Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, out of that fear, may we be obedient servants 
out of our souls, out of our hearts. May it not be a kind of just outward conformity uh, that is seeking to please men with eye service because they're watching and seeing. And we know our, our tendency, Lord, to that. We know our temptation to be influenced by what people see alone. But help us in the, the alone times in our bedrooms and in our homes and wherever we are in our cars that our thoughts and our actions would be pleasing to you. And may it come from a heart that uh, you have touched and that loves you and that is resting and giving you thanks. Lord, as we uh, those travel here next week in this Thanksgiving season to be with family, may you be with them. May your uh, grace and mercy be on them to protect them. May they enjoy the relationships that you've put in place in their lives. And may there be true thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done. May we overflow with the grace of thanksgiving and express this to one another in this season, in every season. We ask you this in Jesus' name.